0: when you let small problems sit.
1: This Ben Jarofsky Show holiday special is brought to you by the Chicago Reader and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. What is having a Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak? It is Tuesday, December 29, 2020. But of course, you could be listening anytime it's a podcast. And as I do with all bonus interviews, I give I read to you the headline in today's paper so you have a sense of what's going on in the world. And this is perfect apropos to what I'll be talking about. Uh, the headline in today's Sun-Times, another title for Michael Jordan's Bulls, Richard Roper puts Last Dance atop television's 10 best of 2020. It's an end of year review list of the best TV shows of 2020, and the reason it's kind of apropos to what I, the gentleman I'll be talking to is because number two in the list is The Queen's Gambit, was, which was tra- produced by Chicago's very own Bill Horberg, uh, who, well, I'm not gonna get ahead of myself here. Uh, so there's a connection to my guests. So as I do with all uh, bonus guests on The Ben Juravsky Show, I ask my distinguished Guests to introduce themselves. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself.
0: Uh, Yes, I am Albert Berger. I'm a film producer living in Los Angeles, but my heart is in the city of
1: my youth, Chicago. So I'm very happy to be here, Ben. Yes, his heart is in Chicago and his starts, his roots are in Chicago. And it was Steve James, a good friend of the show. I just want to give a shout out to Steve uh, who suggested that I reach out to Albert. Uh, Steve has been on the show several times to talk about his movies. He goes, you got to have Albert Berger on your show. And coincidentally, I had had on the show, not too long ago, Bill Horberg, who's the producer of the, um, uh, the Queens Gambit. And Albert, why don't you tell your story? Uh, you and Bill sort of share, uh, sh- Chicago as a hometown and you sort of got your start in a business together. So why don't you tell folks a little bit about how Albert Berger got his start in the business? Yes. Well, Bill, uh, Horberg was a very important
0: person to me. We were uh, very, very good friends in high school. And, uh, then, uh, I, you know, I got uh, very interested in film, went off to college, Bill lived with me when I was uh, at Tufts running the film series there. He was at the Berkeley School of Music. Uh, We used to watch 16 millimeter uh, films in our living room all the time. Uh, And then ultimately Bill returned to Chicago and uh, I came back and joined him and we opened a movie theater there, the Sandberg Theater, which uh, was formerly the Playboy Theater. Uh, There were bunnies on the carpet there. It had been closed for a couple of years. Rats had taken over, but we reopened it as a, uh, a movie theater that, uh, you know, changed movies three times a week and showed repertory. Uh, this was before VHS. And so it was the only way to see older movies. And we did that for a year, year and a half, uh, until we went out of business. And then ultimately I ended up going to film school in New York at Columbia. I became a screenwriter for eight or nine years, wrote, for everybody from Roger Corman to Gary Marshall and ultimately became a film producer. Uh, and, uh, later in my career, I, I, uh, I have a partner, Ron Yerkes. So we've been producing since the early nineties, but later in my career, uh, I rejoined uh, forces with bill and we produced cold mountain together. So we've got a long, you know, long career.
1: B, uh, what are some of the movies that you, uh, that you have produced that people would know about?
0: Well, Little Miss Sunshine uh, is one of the better-known films, Nebraska, uh, which was directed by Alexander Payne, Election. Uh, uh, we did a movie called Peanut Butter Falcon a year ago uh, that was, uh, did very well. People really connected with it. There's a movie called The Wood uh, uh, years ago. So all, all different types of movies.
1: Time out. I do not know you, drew, you produced The Wood. Yeah, The Wood. Yes, exactly. Did you, uh, did you see The Wood? Uh, no, only about five times. And I've seen Peanut Butter Falcon twice. I love Peanut Butter Falcon. In fact, I was urging people to watch uh, Peanut Butter Falcon. It's just, I thought it was a sleeper flick that for some reason, Albert, uh, it, it's just some, some movies, and I'm speaking out of experience now, like first, they don't impress themselves on my brain. You know what I'm fi- and, and so it's like a year will pass and I will stumble upon it somehow or other and uh usually through netflix i still get netflix discs through the mail albert and uh and so i'll go back and that's how i did with uh peanut butter falcon it was a disc i got the disc from uh netflix talk about that just briefly uh putting together peanut butter falcon and tell folks about it it's a great flick in my humble opinion really moving uh, yeah story. well the thing that was amazing about that the
0: uh the two guys that wrote and directed it uh they uh went to a camp uh for uh sort of um uh people with disabilities that um that wanted to be in the arts. And they met Zach Gottshagen, uh the young man who ultimately became star of the film, and Tyler and Mike, the writer-directors, uh they found out Zach wanted to be an actor, and so they wrote that movie for him to star in. I uh, and uh, you know, we got it through uh, a friend, T-Bone Burnett, who we've worked with a bunch over the years. And uh, T-Bone had read the script and loved it and thought we'd respond and sent it our way. And my partner, Ron, and I loved the script. And remarkably, uh, not only did they write a great script, these guys, for Zach, but they also filmed a couple of minutes uh, or a couple of, you know, like 10, 15 seconds from each scene in the movie with Zach playing Zach to prove that he could hold down the center of a movie and they built, you know, boats and props and all that. And we really got a sense that these guys could direct and that Zach could carry a movie. And, uh, you know, we jumped in with uh, our fellow producers and ended up making it, it was a big surprise hit uh, of last year and still available on all the streaming sites and really
1: worth seeing. Or you can get it as I did through a Netflix through the mail. I'm one of the uh, 5,000 uh, baby boomers who still gets his movies that way. Uh, I have and to
0: say- mention that Zach had down syndrome and has down syndrome yes. and, and uh, you know,
1: his performances off the charts as is Shia LaBeouf. It's, it's yeah. quite a nice movies. So. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Let's just discuss this for a little while. Uh, I was just about to say uh, that the uh, the leading actor has Down syndrome and he carries the movie and it's a story about how he connects with Shia LaBeouf's uh, character. I don't want to give too much of the movie away and it becomes like a, a, a classic road flick. Uh, it's uh, Huck Finn and Jim on the raft, although I don't want to give too much of it away. And uh, I'm just, when I'm talking to you right now and thinking about uh, how in so many ways how bizarre the movie is because like i said the leading actor as you point out has down syndrome and it's built around his dream his fantasy about being a professional wrestler so you have this professional wrestling aspect to it i'm just trying to think albert how in the world did you convince people how did you raise money for this movie how did you convince people that this was a marketable movie to invest in
0: well I think you know I, everybody so believed in Zach and his his goal in life and of course the movie is a metaphor in some ways you know in the movie he wants to be uh, a a wrestler but in real life he was desperate to be an actor and hadn't been given a chance and uh and it was hard not to you know fall in love with the guy so I uh, I you know we we found uh, ultimately uh, some financiers who became our producing partners and they just you know, love the movie as much as we did. And, um, they went to bad for it. And the thing that was remarkable about that movie is no film festival would take it. No film distributor wanted it. Finally, after a year of trying, we got into South by Southwest It won the audience award. And from there, uh, a distributor took it on and, and these financiers actually put up the money for the release of the movie. That's how much they believed in it. And, uh, you know, it turned into a great thing. It was, um, You know, it was a really nice uh, success at the box office, which you don't see these days. uh, And I'm sure we'll be talking about that more, the effect that uh, COVID and streaming um, have had on movie going, but uh, in theaters. But the film broke out and uh, ultimately made its way to streaming sites. And a lot of people have discovered it. So that was a
1: very rewarding experience for all involved. Now, how did you uh, raise the money for The Wood, which is a completely different movie, a totally different genre, uh, and yet it seems that that might be uh, difficult and challenging to raise money uh, for that movie as well.
0: Well, The Wood, um, the thing that excited uh, my partner Ron and I about The Wood was that um, we just had not seen sort of middle-class coming-of-age movies uh, set in the black community. And uh, you know, I really grew up loving those. Uh, some of my favorite memories from childhood were, you know, going downtown to see Cooley High, or uh, you know, other other movies that explored you know different cultures that um, you know I was not directly familiar with, and uh, and so I got very excited about the idea of a middle class black film. And uh, thankfully, we had just made election for MTV films and they were very interested in what we were doing next. And we told them about the wood, uh, which had been at the Sundance labs and they, they just jumped right in and financed the movie. So that was not a problem. Uh, that movie to finance. Well, it is,
1: it. it is ahead of its time. And by the way, uh, bill, uh, referenced Cooley high as well. One of the greatest movies, uh, of the 1970s, arguably, and it's definitely in my top five. Uh, it's, it, it's one of my favorite coming of age movies of all time. I urge everybody to watch uh, Albert Berger and Bill Horberg had nothing to do with Cooley high other than to watch it. They had as much to do with it as I did, but each of you Albert uh, have mentioned it as an important movie uh, from your childhood. Oh, yeah. No, it was
0: a great one. And uh, uh, yeah, no, that's a great Chicago film and very worth uh, revisiting. It It was thought of as the black American graffiti, but I I really think it was quite a bit better than American graffiti. So uh, check it out.
1: I agree it's it's deeper than American graffiti you're absolutely correct because it's a coming age movie uh and uh, there's a lot of antics and there's this great uh, uh soundtrack to it of popular music from the time so yeah it's seen there's some parallels but it gets into issues that uh, American graffiti doesn't even pretend to, t- to touch. So I urge everybody, if they haven't seen Coolie High. And it's also, uh, Albert, I know you, you don't live in Chicago anymore, but it's also um, a testament to a community that's been obliterated. And that's the Cabrini Green uh, housing projects, which was just, I guess, west of where you grew up as a kid uh, back in the 60s and 70s.
0: Oh, yeah. No, very close, very close to the Sandberg movie theater. And uh, uh, yeah, Cabrini was a legendary place. And Cooley High was a legendary place. I remember we uh, played them in basketball in high school. And uh, it was uh, quite intimidating to go to that gym and uh, listen to all the chanting and everything. Uh, But it was, uh, you know, uh, amazing environment. And, you know, it's
1: part of Chicago history, really. Yes, it is. Cooley High, the old Cooley High on Sedgwick Avenue, just north of North Avenue. All right. Before we uh, get into the general state of movies uh, with uh, the COVID and streaming, talk about your latest movie uh, with Richard Jenkins.
0: Yeah. The latest movie is called The Last Shift. Um, we uh, It's set in a small town in Michigan, a broken downtown, Richard Jenkins, plays a guy that has worked at the same fast food restaurant for 40 years. He runs the all night shift and uh, he's set to retire and move to Florida to be with his mother. And he has to train his replacement. Uh, uh, A young actor named Shane Paul McGee plays that replacement, a young black actor. And it really takes on race and class in the Midwest at this moment in time. And it's, uh, you know, Jenkins dynamic with Shane over the last four days of his, uh, tenure, uh, you know, at this restaurant. So we filmed it in Chicago, which was a great, great experience, uh, Chicago doubling for Albion, Michigan. And, uh, we filmed mostly in the Rosemont area. It was the third film I've made in Chicago. And, uh, you know, we had a tremendous crew, um, a great cast and, uh, it's uh, set to start streaming, today, I believe, the 29th. So it showed in movie theaters. It was released nationwide about three months ago. It played on uh, 800, 900 screens, which was sort of remarkable in the middle of the pandemic. I didn't even know that many you know, theaters were open. And there's certainly no theaters in LA or New York, uh, but I believe Chicago was open. And so we had a chance to get it out there for people to see it. And now it'll continue through
1: streaming. Albert, what are the other uh, two movies that you made, that you filmed in Chicago?
0: Well, I made a movie called Ice Harvest that uh, the great uh, late Harold Ramos directed with John Cusack, Oliver Platt, Billy Bob Thornton, uh, Connie Nielsen. That was maybe about uh, 15 years ago. And then a movie called What They Had, which is a beautiful, small independent film uh, directed by uh, a woman that grew up in Oak Park, Elizabeth Chomko, about her uh, her family, and that was really that's really worth seeing. It played at Sundance maybe about three years ago, and came out and uh, is you know probably available
1: on various streaming sites. I what have not I've not seen what they had, but I have seen Ice Harvest. It I can't uh, I urge people to check it out if you like dark and I mean dark comedies. It's really dark. Kusak. Uh, <laughs> It's just the most luckless character in the world. Uh, and um, it actually, yeah, you're right. It was filmed in uh, in Chicago, but I think it's supposed to take place in Wichita, Kansas. You're exactly right. Yeah, Waukegan
0: we filmed in. But, uh, uh, you know, Harold would not stand for filming anywhere other than Chicago. So he was such a booster and, of course, it was great for me to be able to come home. But, uh, yeah, you know, we, we, we drove up to Waukegan every morning and, uh, you know, filmed up there.
1: And Waukegan, I guess, supposedly looks a little like uh, Wichita, Kansas. Uh, the book is a good book, too. I actually read the book many years ago. All right. Um, you mentioned that uh, you uh, your movie, your latest movie, uh, The Last Shift, uh, had was on some screens. Uh, Albert, before the pandemic hit, I, my wife and I would go to a, uh, a movie theater in the Chicago area. There's like one of six or seven that were our regulars every week, every weekend, virtually every week. And every now and then we'd miss it. But we were movie goers. And I of course have not been in a movie theater since March. And I think about this a lot, Albert, I miss the movies. And I know maybe it's a generational thing like this, dedication devotion and love for movies in the theater where the film like the communal aspect of it all where i'm sitting in there with other people um your thoughts on this has is this have we lost is, is that gone forever with the pandemic or do you think it can return
0: i definitely think it can return i mean i uh, we've been on a steady path for a while where streaming has been in the ascent and uh movie going in general has, um, has suffered as a result. And the conventional wisdom these days is that, uh, you know, movie going in the future will be relegated to the big event movies. And I'm not sure that's the case. I mean, I certainly think that people will go see those huge Marvel movies in theaters, but, uh, you know, for me, the real joy of, um, movie going is really in the smaller films and the ones that you, you know, the the great stories well told that you kind of hand yourself over to. And, and I really believe that's coming back. I mean, I think you said it very well. It's really about that communal experience of giving yourself up to uh, the story being told on screen. Um, my partner always says uh, that when you're at home watching a movie, I I you're in charge of that experience, you know, you can get up, you can go to the bathroom, you can get something to eat, you can turn off the TV, turn it back on later. But when you're in a movie theater, you're handing the keys over to the filmmakers and that's a kind of um experience that you know, you don't usually have. It's like dreaming while you're awake. You're you're just on a ride and you buy into that ride if it's a good movie and there's nothing else like it. And it's, you know, it's not expensive, uh, in the way that going to a big concert or a theater or whatever is, and it's affordable and, uh, you know, where else can you get that experience? So I do believe that it'll be coming back. Um, you know, but movie theaters are going to have to adapt to the times. I mean, they gotta be come places where, people really want to go for an experience and not just seeing the movie, but perhaps, you know, having a meal afterwards and having a conversation about the film. And I think more and more I, you know, especially to support the smaller independent films,
1: the theaters are going to have to step up in in interesting ways. Well, we see that already, uh, even b- before the pandemic. Uh, almost all the movie theaters in Chicago, uh, Albert, sell alcoholic beverages, uh, and uh, you could actually get a meal at a, at many of the movie theaters. Uh, and the the one in L.A. that I my daughter was in L.A. that I went to, they uh, the Alamo, they had uh, a waitress. A, come to us while we were sitting in the theater what would you like from the bar uh so i'm thinking they're making their money on the bar uh, Yeah, so, well, you, know. I'm not, you know i think the alamo is onto something but at the same time i don't
0: really like the idea of eating a meal while you're watching the movie i'm almost thinking that there's a restaurant that you go to afterwards and that there's you know, maybe there'd be conversations about them. Maybe somebody would lead a, conver- one of the great critics or something would lead a conversation and, and uh, there'd be a bookstore there or, a, you know, an amoeba style uh, place to buy music and just a, a kind of place that you go to for more than the movies, but where the movie is central to the experience.
1: Yeah, I, I'm with you. And you're also talking about a world that does not exist right now. This is a post-vaccine world that you're talking about. a pre-COVID <laughs> world and a post vaccine world Albert Uh, but I'm with you I'm with you 100% Uh, and I even I don't mind the drinking during a movie Uh, and obviously I've been eating popcorn at movies since the 60s but I'm with you about the full meal now that's just too much you know what I'm saying Uh, yeah and ordering with the
0: waitress and yeah how do you give yourself up to the movie when there's uh, you know when there's people coming down the aisle and this and that and chomping on their food. Anyway, I'm, yeah,
1: I think we got the same idea here. All right. So Albert, uh, when you're trying to, uh, generate money and interest in a movie, do you talk about it in terms of a big screen affair or do you talk about it as, uh, a streaming event? How do you do that?
0: Well, it all depends on what the project is. I mean, I'm, uh, uh, primarily a, a film producer. And so, uh, the theatrical, experience has always been key to, um, what we were trying to do. Although these days, you know, I don't mind if, uh, a, a film goes to streaming first or th- I'd prefer it go theatrical, but you know, you have to uh, deal with the reality uh, of the world. And so, um, but also more and more, we're getting, uh, involved with television. We were involved with the television series, The Leftovers, which was on HBO. We've got, uh, 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 a couple series, um series uh, that we're working on now. And, uh, you know, so I'm trying to, you know, trying to keep my mind
1: open to all of the different possibilities. And what are, uh, are people wary of making investments in movie these days because the theaters are closed? Uh, are you following, finding that kind of sort of hesitation on the part of investors?
0: Well, I think so, although we do have, uh, uh, you know, projects that are lined up and ready to go and uh, with financing in place. So I think people are eager to get back at it. But, um, you know, right now, uh, I mean, what Bill did with uh, the Queen's Gambit, um, you know, and, and to some degree, what Steve James did with Cities So Real, um, you know, people are uh, at the moment are very much into the idea of, uh, of uh, you know, of investing in the experience of, uh, watching long form television and really getting to know the characters and, you know, watching it your own clip. So, you know, that's going on in a very interesting way. The last dance as well, you know, those were three, uh, you know, my three favorite, uh, television experiences of the last year were those three, uh,
1: series. So, uh, Might as well, and then there's also the role of festivals, and uh, we have a regular guest in the show, uh, Sergio Mims, who's the co-founder of the Black Harvest Film Festival. I don't know if you've ever had a film in in that one, but it's a, a truly uh, wonderful film festival. Uh, it takes place for most of August in Chicago at the Gene Siskel Theater downtown. And of course, this uh, this year was all virtual, so it really wasn't a film festival at all. What's the impact uh, on on the industry of not having these live events, these festivals, where all the movie geeks can come together and just geek out on their love for movies?
0: Well, it's a big loss, but as is the case with everyone else in the world, um, the festivals are adapting, and you know they're they're virtual. Uh, They're all going virtually. uh, And, you know, uh, Sundance is about to happen, and that'll be very interesting. I think what they're doing, besides the festival, uh, which will be online, they're also having uh, drive ins uh, in various cities around the country for Sundance. So that'll be a unique thing. Uh, I have gone to a couple drive-ins lately, uh, to see movies. Um, and you know, I have to say there's a certain type of movie that in my view plays much better in drive-ins those old, uh, you know, B movies from the seventies or whatever. Um, uh, you know, I remember loving seeing them. It's a, it's a little harder to really focus on a a movie that demands, you know, your attention, your complete attention and nuance and this and that. But it is fun to do. So, and it's uh, safe. It's a safe way to go. So keep your eye out for, uh, for uh, the drive-ins. It'd be pretty cold in Chicago, uh,
1: you know, but I am not going to a drive-in right now. I can tell you that right now. I'm not going to any drive-in. I'm Uh, trying to keep you and your wife
0: with your <laughs> it, but uh,
1: I. Uh, by the way, your list was. I was. It's so funny because your list was the exact same list of mine for my most memorable experiences uh, over this last year. I'm stuck at home. I don't know if I would have. No, I definitely would have watched The Last Dance because I'm a diehard Bulls fan, and I would have watched. Am I. As What's am that? I. Is that that's right? You're still on with the Bulls wait
0: time out you're out in LA you're not jumped aboard the Laker bandwagon not only am I a Bulls fan but somehow I got my two kids uh, my two sons who grew up in LA are both uh rabid Bulls fans so you know we've been suffering since Michael but uh uh, but, um, you know, there was a lot of hope a couple of days ago. I don't know.
1: <laughs> As we speak, just so everybody knows, the sh- my beloved and Albert's beloved Chicago Bulls are 0-3. They just lost a heartbreaker two days ago at the buzzer uh, to the Golden State Warriors, which I still, it's been two days. I still haven't quite got over it, but maybe they'll win. That's uh, the shot too soon. Yes. Yeah, wow. The. Man- <laughs> I could see Albert Berger in L.A. was watching the same uh, Bulls game Uh, I was watching. Let's talk about those three um, great experiences. Let's start with the last dance. What, in your opinion, made it such a a monumental uh, experience? Well, having, you know, lived through that
0: team and, uh, you know, on the edge of my seat for, you know, eight, nine years there, um, even longer from the time – well, I was always a Bulls fan, all the way back to the Dick Mata days, but um, but I – yeah, it was just it was a wonderful way to reconnect with those characters. Um I, I mean I did feel a little bit like the series started out impeccably, and as it went on, I felt that they raced to get it done in time to get it out for COVID because people were hungering for something. And I think they accelerated the schedule. And the the kind of way they played with time. I felt, um, got a little bit out of their control, but that was one small qualm. Other than that, um, I just loved every minute of it. You know, uh, uh, those were my guys and, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I could have used a little more of Tony, a little more of Ron Harper, but you know, what a great portrait of, uh, um, of a team. And it really, you know, you really saw what made Michael tick and, you know, why Scotty was the greatest number two of all time, uh, you know, to Michael. And I, I don't know, you know, that I just loved it. What about and, you, Ben? Would you? Uh,
1: well, it was yeah. the last dance for me, uh, was a connection and it was very personal. Uh, I dedicated five episodes of the show to it and where I would interview different people that were connected somehow or other to the experience, uh, Albert. And it was just, a. um, it was just a very personal connection because this is like a, a more of an embarrassing confession than anything else. I literally remembered almost every moment that that film chronicled. There's a moment in 1986, Albert, uh, they talked about... I can't, uh, the Bulls were not going to make the playoffs. They were rationing Jordan's time. He was oh, insisting great. that he come back. And Stan Albeck, under instructions from general manager Jerry Krause, took Jordan out of the game at the closing moments in Indiana. He took him out because he reached this limit. Jordan was so pissed. Someone from the stands yelled out, Albeck, you nitwit. I remember that it was in the Tribune. back, you nitwit. And John Paxson hit a shot at the buzzer to win the game, put the Bulls in the playoff, and there Michael Jordan set the stage where he got to score to 63 points against Boston. Albert, I remember all that stuff like it happened yesterday. So when I saw that movie, and they, to their credit, they highlighted that moment and Paxson talked about it. I was like, yes! I told my wife, I was telling her, go, Paxson's going to hit the shot now. Paxton's going to hit the shot in Indiana. She's like, that's nice, honey. (laughs) That was
0: beautifully done in the movie. And it was such a important time for the Bulls because uh, the thing I admired so much was that, you know, uh, Michael didn't jump shift or or push for a trade or all the things they do now. Uh, You know, they stuck it out and they got past that year and uh, ultimately got past the Pistons and they, You know they got better and better and they worked it and they they finally got to where they needed to go and it was amazing and you know michael was like almost like a greek god or something and you know and at the same time scotty was so human you know how how can you not empathize with a guy that, you know, would feel the pressure. He was such a human being, you know, the, that incredible moment where he wouldn't go in the game with coach, and, you know, on the one hand, it's an unthinkable moment in sports, but on the other hand, as a, as a flawed person, as we all are, how can you not understand that he wanted to be the man that was such an incredible season for him? I mean, there was so much rich character stuff in that, in that series, I, I, I can't say enough about it, really
1: now let's talk a little about your friend's uh venture the queen's gambit in a million years albert i would never have predicted that the big netflix experience of the year would be a uh what is it five parts whatever how many parts are his series on a woman playing chess in a million years, i never would have predicted that uh i don't know could would you have predicted that did that catch you by surprise and really what i'm asking what was the element uh You know, I know it's Monday morning quarterbacking, but what was the element in the Queen's Gambit that accounts for its astounding success?
0: Well, I think it was a very unusual, eccentric main character who the audience completely got behind and you just wanted to see her succeed. And it was so surprising that uh, series from a character standpoint because people were so unexpectedly generous to her. And I think at this moment in time, I really think that's the secret to that story is that, you know, we live in such harsh, divisive times and, you know, the, 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 the men that she beat along the way would turn in support of her, the foster mother that she connects with, um, becomes this, you know, wonderful mentor figure to her and, and partner to her. And, you know, people behaved in such surprisingly generous ways. And I think we're so hungry for that, that, uh, uh, you know, my hat is off to that show and, and to Bill who, you know, he worked on that thing for 20 years and, you know, it was so much, uh, uh, you know, from Bill's universe, uh, you know, Bill really cares about those kind of, uh, those books and turning them into movies, those kind of books. And, You know, you saw it with uh, the talented Mr. Ripley and, you know, on and on. And it was very much, uh, you know, I think a
1: labor of love for Bill. And I was really happy to see that breakthrough in the way that it did. Yeah, it was a novel that had all been uh, well but forgotten. The author had died and now it's uh, on the bestseller list. Uh, Thanks uh, to uh, the um, incredibly successful Netflix show. And finally, City So Real. Steve James, the guy who brought us together. Your thoughts on City So Real.
0: Ah, well, you know, for me, uh, that was just a big, well-needed fix uh, for Chicago. I, I mean, you know, I've been away a long time. I wasn't really up to speeds on, speed on what was going on in the various neighborhoods. The characters were just amazing. And, uh, you know, I didn't really know much about Lori Lightfoot's ascent, and uh you know, really made me like her. She kind of came out of nowhere in that documentary, and uh, and you know, she there's something about her that just seemed purely Chicago. Uh, you know, I I mean, what a tough job that is. What a thankless job. But uh, you know, just to see her emerge, and you know, to go through that year or two uh, in the city, uh, that uh, you know, it just I felt like it was a primer on what was going on, and and at that moment in time, I felt. I got my fix, you know, and Steve did a beautiful job. Uh, You know, um, it was, it was epic. And I could have watched another five hours of it. So
1: uh, I loved it. Well, I've seen it three times, but that is mainly because I've done a special on that one as well. Uh, So, all right, as I speak, uh, Albert, I'm looking out my window and it's snowing. So the, your hometown, uh, you may still love it, but you were smart enough to get out of it during December. It's snowing, and its I hear uh, it's going to turn to like uh, uh, ice. So it's going to be an ice storm, all right? Uh, so here's my question I'm going to close with. What can you recommend for snowbound Chicagoans uh, to be watching uh, over the next month or so that they may not know about, and it could be a movie that you produced or something that you want people to know about. Uh, I just got to tell you, when I asked Bill Horberg this question, he immediately promoted his movie. So, uh, what, what's, what's, uh, what's your recommendation, Albert Berger?
0: Well, a couple things I would say. Uh, of course, I have to say the last shift is very worth seeing, and uh, I, you know, so definitely check that out. Um, but I, I saw a couple movies. Um, one recently, it was called uh, The Sound of Metal. It's on Amazon. It was a beautiful film about a heavy metal drummer uh, played by Riz Ahmed, who's a terrific actor. And um, he's starting to go deaf. And it is just a beautiful film uh, exploring you know, what happens to this musician as he's losing his hearing. And it really gets into the nuances in the, uh, in that community of uh, whether to, uh, you know, address it medically or whether it's a natural thing and you embrace it. And it was a profound, beautiful movie. I highly recommend it. Another movie I saw that is uh, uh, very tough, but also beautiful, very worth seeing. It's called Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. And it's a a, a movie uh, about a young woman in Pennsylvania, a young high school girl that um, with her friend goes to New York City uh, to get an abortion. And it is um, profound and uh, very worth seeing. Uh, As I say, tough subject matter, but uh, impeccably done and these are two small movies that
1: um I thought were remarkable. I'm with you 100%. I have not seen never uh really sometimes always I, I will see it I wrote it down. Uh I'm with you 100% of Sound of Metal. I don't want to give anything away just to say the close of Sound of Metal, a sound of metal, of metal. It's harder to say than I realize. Sound of Metal is one of the most moving closing scenes I've seen in a long time. I don't know if you remember it, but it's just
0: stunning. And it, you know, really gives you an appreciation for life. You know, what more can you want at this moment in time than uh, to
1: appreciate um, some of the things we have? absolutely and that's as good a spot as ever to close it Uh, Albert Berger thanks so much for coming on the show I want you and your family to be safe and sound uh, going into the new year and I'm really looking forward to bringing you back when we're talking about movies in movie theaters I'm going to tell you about all the movies my wife and I have seen I will be sharing our movie experience let's hope that's just around the corner
0: well thank you Ben and I just have to share with you that I spent last night and this morning reading A Simple Game and that was awesome uh, so I highly recommend that. Look up your uh, your uh, reader article from way back when, and uh, I, I, you know, I, I'll be thinking
1: about that Manning for a long time. So Man, the great Manny Winecord, my dear friend, uh, I can't believe you found your way to a simple game. Yeah, I spent a year with Manny Winecords, uh, Roosevelt Rough Riders. Uh, back in the 90s, Albert. Back in the 90s. I've been doing this a long time. Is he still with us? He is still with us. He is obvi- he's retired. Retired, I think, in 2000. And he's been on the show. Yeah, uh, he oh He's God. been on the show, man. He comes on the show. Uh, his hearing is not that strong, so it's really difficult uh, to have him on the show all the time. But he's a one of the most influential people I've ever met in my entire life. I mean, well, I-, I
0: hope you get to follow up with those characters because I, I came to love all of them as I was reading the thing, and uh, I'd really be interested in knowing what happened to them,
1: you know. I actually bumped into a, I bump into a couple of them from time to time, uh, just down the street, living in the street. They're now – these are uh, kids that I followed when they were 17 or 18 back in the early 90s, uh, and, of course, they're in their 40s now. So yeah. life <laughs> – you know, there's that Dave Chappelle movie uh, where they go, man. And, uh, time is no joke, and uh, it's no joke for us all. Uh, all right, Albert, thanks so much. Thanks for coming on, and I'll talk to you real soon, all right? See you soon. All right, that's care, Albert ben. Berger. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.